This is 105.9 The Region with your stories, the good news in our neighborhoods, our cities, our country, and beyond. This is good to hear. York Region's own Jeff Barr is a volunteer puppy raiser with the Canadian National Institute for the Blind's Guide Dog Program. Jeff has raised and trained four dogs for the organization, including his latest, Kayla, who we just sent away for adoption. I'm Craig Robertson, and we welcome Jeff Barr to Good to Hear. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for doing this, Jeff. Thank you. My pleasure, too. Jeff, you're a retired school teacher. How did training uh, guide dogs come into your life? How did it all start for you? Well, uh, growing up in South Africa, I always had dogs, uh, five or six dogs. When we came to Canada teaching, I, I didn't want to take uh, my own dog because um, you know, I was going to be away, you know, coaching, meeting parents, meeting with kids. Um, so when I retired um, five years ago, I, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do with myself and all the time that I had. One day I was reading our local newspaper and um, there was an advert um, asking for uh, volunteers for CNIB that had just started up the guide dog program. Um, and I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. Uh, I love dogs. Um, I have a lot of patience. I love teaching. Um, and all three could mesh together if I you know, raised and trained a puppy. So um, I applied online and uh, then had an interview. Um, and then I had to visit the headquarters down at Bayview. And uh, I spoke to, you know, to uh, various members of uh, CNIB. Uh, they took me through you know, what it meant to be a raiser, uh, to be a trainer at the same time. Um, and you know, whether I was interested, I said, of course. And then I got a, a, um, uh, a I became a boarder for a, a puppy um, that now is a, uh, you know, a guide dog. Um, and so I had him for about two, three weeks, and I realized that you know this was this was for me, and um, and within a very short time uh, thereafter, um, I got my own puppy, uh, Cooper, um, and I haven't looked back. It must be so rewarding, Jeff, and emotionally draining as well. I mean, these dogs become a part of your family. What's what's it like after you you've trained them and they're ready to to go on to to their 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 new family? Talk about the emotions that you go through. Um, I found after you know saying goodbye to four dogs, uh, Kleenex uh, doesn't cut it. So now we use roller towels. Um, it, it's. It's sad. Uh, in fact, uh, when my son got married, it was easier to say goodbye to him than to say goodbye to one of these dogs. As you said, you know, they become part of your family. Yeah. Um, but it's just amazingly rewarding. Um, and uh, it's sad. But then I've been very, very fortunate. Um, CNIB have given me either an overlap puppy um, or a, an older dog, uh, for example. When Cooper left, or just before Cooper left, they gave me a puppy, um, Elsie. So I had them overlapping for two weeks. So it does make the departure a little bit easier, knowing that there's another puppy to continue, uh, you know, raising and training and loving. Um, so I've been very, very fortunate in, in that respect. So um, I, uh, it, it's hard, you know, each time it, it's, you think it gets easier, but it doesn't. No. Um, but then I know that uh, they passed, you know, my high school. Uh, they're going on to university in Ottawa. 
and uh, that they are eventually going to change somebody's life. Our guest is Jeff Barr. Jeff is a volunteer puppy raiser with the CNIB Guide Dog Organization. Jeff is a retired school teacher, which offers some great training to train dogs. What are some other great attributes to be a strong guide dog trainer? Of, of course, the, the first thing is, you know, you've got, you've got to love pets. You've got to love, you know, dogs. Um, you need a, a lot of patience. Uh, and you know, being a teacher, you know, you learn a lot of patience there too. Um, and of course, a lot of time. I mean, this is not a, uh, a half-time job. Um, you know, it really does take a village uh, in order to raise these dogs. I've been very, very fortunate uh, with Kayla and before Kayla uh, Magic that um, there's a, another raiser nearby, Dr. Margaret Ferron, and uh, she also uh, raises uh, you know, puppies like I do. And we get together on a regular basis, sometimes three, four times a week. And, um, and we help each other. Uh, I've met some incredible people, uh, so, so, so many interesting people, knowledgeable. Um, and we have a lot of fun. It really is a lot of fun. So you do need a sense of humor um, because uh, a lot of the conversation centers around poop. Um, and peeing, um, but uh, it's, it's not, there's no words to describe it. Um, you know, if, if this wasn't voluntary, I, I would pay CNRB to do this. That's, that's amazing, Jeff. Wow. I, I know that guide dogs go on adventures and the trainers go on the adventures with the guide dogs. We've seen them in restaurants and in movie theaters and whatnot. Can you speak to one adventure that is either heartwarming or, or fun for you when you had your guide dogs out on an, on an adventure? Oh, that's the easy one. Um, I went with Dr. Um, uh, Perrin, um, with, uh, who had uh, Boyd. Uh, we decided... Um, about two years ago, um, in the fall, the, um, the Toronto Symphony Orchestra decided to give an afternoon luncheon uh, a free concert. Uh, and so we decided, uh, yeah, let's take the dogs. We had taken them to movies. They had gone to see an opera uh, recital. Let's take them to, you know, let's to listen to a symphony orchestra. And uh, so they put us in some great seats. And I turned around to Margaret and I said, you know, it would be amazing. Can you imagine if um, they played Tchaikovsky's 8 and 12 Overture, uh, you know, with the cannons going off and explosions and the noise. And, oh, we sat back and they played various, you know, uh, classical performances. And then they decided the last song is going to be, guess what? Tchaikovsky, 1812 Overture. Oh. And we looked at the dogs and we thought, oh my God, I hope they don't freak out. And they were amazing. They were calm, uh, there's no barking. Um, but we, we laughed a lot because, you know, uh, I was uh, you know, thinking about, gee, can you imagine if they did play this and uh, how would our dogs react? And they actually did perform uh, Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. So there was a lot of fun. We, 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 we left so much. Uh, when I come home, uh, my wife wants to know, you know, why are you so tired? Is it from, you know, six, eight kilometers of walking, you know, up and down stairs, subway, stay nose. I'm, I haven't stopped laughing. So you do need a sense of humor. And as I said, you meet the most wonderful people, uh, lots of distractions as well, which uh, help with the training process. So, you know, I recommend this to anybody you know, who's got the time, the patience, 
who love dogs. Um, and as I said, it will be one of the most rewarding things that you've done in your life. Guide dog trainers are in need. So if you're listening to this interview and you're interested in volunteering, visit cnib.ca for more information. Thank you. Thanks, Craig. Appreciate it. What an inspiring story, Jeff. You've been such a great guest and, and you're representing the CNIB and uh, guide dog volunteers from across the country. We need more people like you in the world, Jeff. Our guest, Jeff Barr, a volunteer puppy raiser with the CNIB Guide Dog Organization. Thanks very much for your time, Jeff. I'm good to hear. Okay, great. Thanks, Craig. Appreciate it. Bye. And that's good to hear. I'm Craig Robertson on 105.9 The Region. Good to hear. This is the good news. Now, this is good to hear. CAA Club Group of Companies donating $900,000 to some very deserving charities, including Sick Kids, the Black Youth Helpline, and Children's Hospital Foundation of Manitoba. And Rhonda English is the Chief Marketing Officer of the CAA Club Group. And uh, you're headquartered here in York Region, right, Rhonda? Yes, we are. Yeah, we've got two buildings here, actually, and uh, and uh, a lot of employees. So we're very familiar with CAA, and uh, about they are they are angels. I will tell you that. And and uh, when you're out there in the cold or stranded, definitely. Uh, but now you're acting as angels in a different way by uh, giving money to these very deserving groups. Um, where did this nine hundred thousand come from? Uh, well, as an organization, you know, we're always looking to give back um, to the communities that we support and the communities that our associates live in. So the money is, um, you know, <laughs> part of our commitment to support the communities that we that we do business in. Now, there's no doubt that the, the groups you've chosen are very well deserving of this money. There are a lot of deserving groups. How did you settle on these three in particular? Well, we, we talked to our uh, associates um, and asked them which charities um, they had relationships with, which charities they would like to support. And so it's really an associate-driven selection process. Um, there's an, a charity advisory council, and they put forward the recommendations for these, uh, these three charities. So I mean, sick kids. That's a fantastic, uh, a fantastic charity to uh, donate to. So that was a pretty easy one to come up with. Yeah, you know, Sick Kids uh, Foundation and, and the hospital have a lot of our associates have experience either personally or through family and friends, and so it was just a very natural selection for us because uh, people could really relate, and our employees usually like to get involved in in whatever charitable um, initiatives we have going. And uh, the personal experience—you mentioned personal experience—did this factor a lot into making these choices? Yeah, I mean, uh, we we look for personal experience, but we also look for um, where are the needs in the communities that we serve. And so, for instance, Black Youth Helpline, we actually started supporting them in 2020 when the Black Lives Matter, um, you know, um, concerns and issues were were high. And we wanted to, you know, not just talk about it, but actually put money towards mm-hmm helping on that front. So, you know, that that came out of um, that support. And the Children's Hospital Foundation of Manitoba, our support there is really um, uh, in helping with creating an Indigenous healing space. And so, um, you know, the the discussion around uh, truth and reconciliation is is, uh, is center for all of us. And our associates wanted to um, find ways to help 
specifically in that area as well. So I, I do see the theme here, sick kids, black youth, <laughs> uh, children's hospital of Manitoba. Uh, this is definitely youth-oriented, right? Yeah, youth-oriented and also, um, you know, some of the vulnerable communities and, and, and families. And there's a lot around education and research as well. So, but they're all very, very, um, you know, um, high High need areas um, that we, as uh, you know, as Canadians and, and as an organization, feel that we need to help wherever we can. Uh, yeah, that's fantastic, and and a lot of this does go into the truth and reconciliation. At least two of these uh, these will factor into that right now. And the good work of the CAA doesn't end there, does it? Oh no, um, we actually have um, um, other charities that our associates select. Um, to contribute to, and it's uh, um, there's six or five of them. Sorry, um, the ongoing we um, have these, and they're a little bit lesser amounts, but they're still significant for these organizations. So, in in Ontario, we have the Canadian Cancer Society and the Ontario Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, and in Winnipeg or in Manitoba, sorry, it's um, Winnipeg Humane Society and the Harvest uh, Manitoba, which is a food bank, and then the Bear Clan Patrol which is um, really uh, community people helping communities for personal security in, a, in the inner city in uh, Winnipeg in non-threatening and non-violent and supportive ways. All right. Well, this is fantastic. It's good news. It's uh, good to hear. Thank you very much for joining me, Rhonda. Hey, my pleasure, and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. All right. Rhonda English, Chief Marketing Officer of the CAA Club Group. I'm Kevin Frankish for 105.9 The Region. Thanks a lot, Rhonda. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Good to hear. We'll be right back on 105.9 The Region. Listen live at 1059theregion.com or 105.9 FM. This is 105.9 The Region with your stories, the good news in our neighborhoods, our cities, our country, and beyond. This is Good to Hear. Part of our new series, Good to Hear, is is highlighting good stories and people who've done something special in the region. Well, I can tell you something. I've written a few books myself. I know a lot of authors, but I don't know anyone who's been on the New York Times bestseller list, but someone has from Stovall, Marissa Stapley, joining us on Good to Hear. Marissa, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I mean, your, your writing roots run deep, especially with your father from his time at the Stobel Tribune and, and your grandparents. Obviously, writing is in your blood growing up on Main Street in Stovall. When did you, before we get to your success, when did you officially think you had the writing bug, Marissa? I actually don't remember not thinking I had the writing bug. (laughs) (laughs) I was always told by family, by babysitters, by friends. I was always reading. I was always writing stories. So I can't really pinpoint the moment, although I do remember really loving the Anne of Green Gables series. Maybe I was around 10 or 11 and realizing, learning about Lucy Maud Montgomery as an author and realizing that was a possibility, a job, something that I could aspire to. Well, so. you, your resume reads like a lot of other writers in this country. You went to J school, you were a freelancer, you had a family, worked at a magazine, worked as an editor. I mean, you did a bit of everything and got your hand <laughs> into writing a novel. But I mean, it, I mean, I've written some books, co-written some books. It's so hard to sell books in the modern society, let alone a Canadian author, make the New York Times list. When did you think you had something special there with Lucky? 
I think about that a lot now because I almost wrote Lucky out of self-preservation. I was working on another book at the time, which I'm now back to, and I'm loving working on it, and I know it's going to do well, but I couldn't wrap my head around it at the time. My mom wasn't well. There was a lot going on in my life, and Lucky just kind of shot out of the blue, and the idea came to me, and I thought, ooh, I should just drop everything and work on this. I can work on this. This is something that's fun and exciting and totally distracting. Um, so I think maybe at that time, just knowing that this was something I had to drop everything and work on alerted me to the fact that it was something special, but I never could have imagined that this is what would have happened with this book. Well, any author needs a little nudge now and then to take them over the ledge and to be part of the coveted Reese Witherspoon book club and the first Canadian author to have that happen. When did you find out that you were part of this exclusive club? I found out in September, early September, my, I had dinner plans with my literary agent, Samantha Haywood, and as I approached the restaurant, they were sitting on a patio, and I saw that my editor was there from Simon & Schuster. And I thought, well, this is a nice surprise. I didn't think she'd be here. And then they were all excited, and there was champagne at the table, and I honestly, I never could have possibly imagined, expected, or predicted that this is what they were going to tell me. I think, I don't know anyone who actually dreams of this because it's 12 authors a year. It's like winning the lottery. So my agent started taping with her phone. My editor told me I burst into tears. It was just such an incredible night and such an incredible surprise that I'll never forget. It was it's definitely a high moment in my career. Now, for people listening who don't realize, in Canadian publishing, 5,000 sales is considered a bestseller, and anything above that is gravy. From a sales standpoint with Lucky, after you hit Reese Witherspoon's book club, did you and the publishers and your editor and everything notice a, a pronounced spike in sales, not just in this side of the border, but all across North America? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the, I think people are always surprised to hear how many books might sell, even for a number one Canadian bestseller. Mm -hmm. The volume really isn't that high. And to get onto the New York Times bestseller list is complicated. And honestly, it requires a very high number of one week sales. Uh, And it can be tremendously difficult as a Canadian author to get traction across the border. So I think that night, back in September, when I was told that news, we all knew that this is where it was heading. Um, I think something like 80% of Reese's picks hit the New York Times. And this Lucky is such a commercial book that you just knew that it was probably going to happen. But there's definitely been a spike beyond any... I mean, in the first week, I think Lucky sold more than some of my other books have sold time. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking with Stovall's author, a member of the New York Times bestseller list, Marissa Stapley. And in the story of Lucky, for people who don't realize, it's a tremendous sort of um, idea of a story. A talented con artist with a heart of gold has a winning lottery ticket she can't cash while on the run from the law. There's a lot going on there. That's, I mean, that speaks to your fertile mind to come up with sort of a, like all these little storylines like that for your book. Yeah, and I think all authors I know and and writers, aspiring or published, you're always kind of trolling through the world looking for stories. Um, And this is actually something that I learned from my dad and learned from getting my start in community newspapers in Stouffville is that you were constantly just looking around the community for stories and really interesting stories could be found 
in anything. And this just happened to to come to me when I was listening to um, a radio report speculating about why a huge lottery payout in the U.S. hadn't been claimed yet. And one of the radio announcers said, you know, sometimes people have an arrest warrant um, and they can't come forward. And I just happened to grab onto that. And I thought, oh, there's there's so much story there. Um, and that's, that's how it happened. But, it, but that's kind of always happening, right? I'm always on the hunt because you, you've got to be ready for your next book, even while you're writing the one you're working on. I know the first book I wrote, I got the, a, a buddy of mine gave me some advice. He had read from Stephen King that you should try to write a thousand words a day to build the framework of your first manuscript. When you started writing and started putting it to your laptop and started putting it together, did that flow easily? Were there starts and stops? How did it come together, Marissa? So Lucky really did flow. This is That was my fourth novel, and now I'm on to my fifth. And I've been speaking with author friends. We often, you know, chat by text or, or about how it feels as you, uh, in the writing life. And I think the first novel and the second novel didn't come quite as, as easily. But once you're on to your third, your fourth, your fifth, sitting down, like Stephen King, I mean, I don't even know how many books he's written, but once you get to a certain point, that thousand words, it really, it does, it flows. It's your job. So, you know, today I sat down and I wrote 1,600 words and it really didn't take me very long because it's now, it's what I do. And I feel very lucky that I get to keep doing it because of having received this incredible break. Because as you said earlier, it's tough. The publishing world is, is tough here, North America, around the world. It's not easy to make it. So to get to sit down every day and, and bang off those words and more is just a, an incredible gift. Well, you're not just a best-selling author, Marissa, your husband, your parents. So do you set aside certain times of the day for your writing? Do you have certain preferred times, morning, afternoon, or night, where you get your best writing done? So I I do tend to work better in the morning. So I set aside, and when my kids were younger, I really had to get up really early, like, you know, 5 a.m., um, 6 a.m. To, to get the writing in before the you know, tremendous work of having two kids who are very close together in age um, started. Now my kids are teenagers. They're more independent. Uh, so I don't get up at such punishingly early hours. But I do find anything after 2 p.m., I'm I'm no good. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> so that's when I do house stuff or kid stuff or, you know, friend stuff. Um, uh, so, yes, but mornings, really, that. And I have friends who, who write late into the night, and I used to do that. And I, I can't imagine staying up that night anymore. So <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Marissa Stapley, your story is incredible. I'm sure there's a lot of men and women listening to you. Um, they're thinking, maybe, wait a sec, maybe I could do something. Do you have words of advice for someone thinking about trying to follow in your footsteps? I mean, I, I always tell, and I've taught writing, and and I always say to my students, the most important thing to, with wanting to be a writer is, first of all, accepting that you are a writer. Like, you know, I did yoga this morning, and I can say I'm a yogi. People go running, and they say they're a runner, but it's so difficult with writing to, to have the courage to call yourself a writer. So call yourself a writer. Take pride and joy in that and every step. It, it's impossible to say, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write a best-selling novel. I didn't even know I was going to do it, you know, at any step in my career. So, but I do know that my best writing always came when I was finding joy in the writing. So just take joy and take pride in every step 
and take the expectation of what may happen off of your shoulders. Well said. The Pride of Stoleville, Marissa Stapley from Main Street to the New York Times bestseller list with a great novel, Lucky. Look for it wherever you get your books. Marissa, thank you so much. I can't wait to see the next book you publish and a continued success. And congratulations. You did York Region proud. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marissa. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Send us your good news stories at info at 1059theregion.com. This is good to hear.